it might be explained because at this time with more sexual autonomy, women were less afraid to sort of litigate their sexual experiences. So courts concluded as a result of that, the tort was ripe for abusive process and that emotional damages in this case were unfit for the type of harm caused. The woman who actually led the the movement to abolish the tort concluded that women were no longer considered to be chattel and they did not need the protection of the law from men, so the tort was not needed. Hey, this is Sean Kernikian, and you're tuned into Civil Action. This is the podcast of Cabotech LLP. We're a firm in downtown LA that does a lot of different work on the plaintiff's side. And we put this podcast on so we can share with you what we are learning about the law. Our weekly podcast is dedicated to important topics for lawyers and issues in the law. We have guests. We talk about recent cases. We talk about trends. We talk about practice areas. We try to help people be better lawyers and learn about the law. In some ways, you can look at this as a 15 to 20 minute law school class each week. Welcome back to Civil Action with Brian Kabatek. This is Brian Kabatek. I'm the managing partner of Kabatek LLP. I just made it realize, Sean, that it sounded like it's my show. Civil Action by Brian Kabatek, along with my sidekick, it's, Sean Carnegie. It's all yours. It's all yours. It's your show. It's your show. Many more ways than one. No, I'm, I'm Sean Carnegie. I'm Brian's sidekick and a partner at the firm. And, and my five today, favorite sidekick. Favorite sidekick. You wow, favorite that's sidekick. great. What an honor. You're a great. What guy. an honor. So this is civil action. We often, we used to cover new cases that have come down from the Court of Appeal. Well, lately, we've been doing something that we've gotten some good feedback on, which is having other associates from our office on to talk about current cases or interesting areas of the law, issues that they've run into, that they've tried to figure out and they want to share with others. And we've gotten some good feedback on that because I guess let's I guess be, it is practical. Let, let's be honest also that anytime we have anybody besides the two of us on, it's we get good feedback because people like other people. They don't like us. That's right. Yeah. Pe- people don't tune in for us. Introduce our, our guest. Our, our guest introduce, introduce our guest and associate today. Today we have Annie Martin McDonough. Did I say that right, Annie? You did. See, I had her. I had Sean introduce her because I just for some reason I'm struggling with her Irish last name. Martin McDonough. If you can pronounce my last name, you can pronounce Annie's last name. So it's fine. Annie's actually an attorney here at our firm. She's our intake attorney. So many of you, if you've ever called our firm, if you've ever you know pitched a case to us or tried to co-counsel something with us, you've probably run into Annie and she researches any crazy area of law that you can come up with in any case you've tried to pitch. And she helps us evaluate things and she teaches us about areas of the law we don't know enough about. And today she's going to be doing a little bit of that. Yeah, this is a fascinating topic today. But first of all, hi, Annie. Welcome. Hi, thank you for having me. Good. Anything you want to share with our seven or eight listeners about yourself? I'm originally from Massachusetts and I moved to Los Angeles to go to law school. And went to a great law school. I went to Loyola Law School. And we also understand that there are more Irish people in Massachusetts than in Los Angeles. There are a lot of people even with the last name McDonough in Massachusetts. Yeah, way more than in L.A., and you never left L.A. You're still here. I'm still here. Uh, so I take it you liked it here. It is much nicer in Los Angeles than in the cold weather of New England. Other than the lack of Irish people. <laughs> <laughs> and so today we're going to be talking about what is the tort yeah, This of is really a fascinating topic. I didn't know anything about this until Annie brought this to us as something that she wanted to talk about and, and knew something about. But this is what this is. We'll call it the tort of seduction. That's what it's called. Right, Annie? It is. Such an interesting history. So this goes back a long time. 
And let's just talk, where did it come from and what's it about? Sure. So the tort originated 300 years ago in the 17th century. It originally was a property right held by the the father. Women were thought to be chattel at the time. So the father could sue the daughter's seducer if the seducer impregnated the daughter and stole outside or, of wedlock I outside say. of wedlock the unmarried daughter and as a result the father lost the daughter's services because she became and, and what was what was the father suing for the father was suing for loss of services like monetary damages monetary right? damages and it, it's it almost sounds like a like a property right kind of right it's a property right held by the father huh was it only for minor daughters or any daughter at all that was unmarried um, and that, that he could sue for? So 300 years ago, it wasn't specifically for minor daughters, but it was very rare for women who were not minors to be unmarried at the time. Yeah, but if they were and somebody impregnated her, which you know makes it sound like it's a one way street, but but it would be a tort that the father could sue for, regardless of the age. You, you, I've lost the services of my daughter and you now owe me money. Right, exactly. Okay, but it evolved. So where did it go from there? So the tort originated in... Oh, England. one important point, though, is the, 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 the woman herself, 300 years ago, had no right to bring this action herself, right? Exactly. Only the woman's father or sometimes her, her guardian if it, that was not the father. Okay, so that's in the 1700s. Now let's go into the 1800s. Right, so by the mid-1800s, the tort evolved sort of into one of morality where the father, the guardian, or sometimes the woman herself could sue for emotional damages for her loss of virtue in this situation or her virginity. So that it, this was occurring in the Victorian era where women... They're, they're, the highest thing that they had of value was their own virtue and their reputation in society. So if a man seduced her, tricked her into a sexual relationship and that harmed her reputation in some way, the woman or like I said, the father could then sue the seducer for emotional damages. OK, so did, did the woman did the woman have the right at that point, like when it kind of evolved into this or still no? It varied by state, but the wo woman uh -huh. in some states did have the right. And eventually most states did allow the woman to have the right. OK, the, in order to have the right, though, the, did the woman have to prove that she was improperly seduced into into the relationship? Yes. So the woman had to prove that she was tricked into a sexual relationship. And she also had to prove that at the time she was tricked, she was either a virgin or newly committed to her celibacy or in some way had been robbed of her her virtue. And and it included, if I'm right, it included that they could be tricked by flattery, false promises, things like that. Right. So there there was a similar tort at the time that was breach of promise to marry. And often that was brought at the same time as this tort. So if someone offered to marry a woman and then tricked her into a sexual relationship that way, then she could bring the tort for, of seduction and also breach of promise to marry. All right. So then that's sort of the Victorian era. Now we sort of come into the early 20th century, the late 19th century. This was something, by the way, that was that was adopted in California, right? I mean, the, the, the tort of seduction was a tort that was viable in California. Like codified under California law, huh? 
uh, not caught. I don't think it was, was it codified or was it, was it just common law? It was common law. Oh, okay. Okay. Oh, wow. But a Supreme Court case in 1893 held in California that this cause of action required more than mere reluctance on behalf of the woman. So the the man had to trick her into a sexual relationship and she had to be more than merely reluctant to enter into the sexual relationship in order to prevail on the cause of action. So just to sort of better understand this, what's the difference between at the time the tort of seduction and an actual physical rape or assault, sexual assault? So the tort of seduction did not require any force by by physical means. It was just pricking someone into a sexual relationship, a woman in in this context at that time, into a sexual relationship using wiles or trickery or making promises and otherwise picking a person that could be easily influenced, but not physically forcing them and forcing them to have sex. So not rape. Was there like, I don't want to call it an intent requirement. Obviously, those are intentional things, but was there like a requirement to show that you know, the lies, the motive of those lies was to seduce the woman? Or did it, is like, a, if you know, it was like mere misrepresentations about. The, the yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm, it's so interesting because it could it be, you know, if you have sexual intercourse with me, I'll marry you. Could that be considered actionable? Yes, but that specifically like was it. usually actionable under the breach of promise to marry. Right. But. That that tort went away. Promises like that also went away at the same time as this tort did. But if a man promised a woman, I'll leave my wife. I love you. I I want to be with you. I'm going to quit my job and move across the country and things like that. That would all be considered trickery. Okay, I want to come back to this trickery, but I want to go through the history first because I've got a lot of questions about this trickery issue. But let's keep going through the history of this. So. What happened? See, this case that came down from the California Supreme Court, the world famous case of Marshall versus Taylor. No, it's not world famous. The first time I heard of it was when Annie told us about this. But what was the what was the ultimate holding in that case? The holding in, the, in that case was it upheld the, the tort and it held that it required more than mere reluctance. On okay. Behalf of the woman. OK, so so trickery or something like that. Right. OK, so now what happens? Let's go forward into now we're in the 20th century. So now in the 20th century, most jurisdictions have abolished the tort of seduction and other similar claims, like I said, the breach of promise to marry. So what happened is by 1935, women had the right to vote. Contraception was widely available. And for many societal reasons, women were on sort of a, a more equal playing field. So there, there are sort of three reasons why the tort started to lose popularity and there was a movement to abolish it in 1935. First, it might be explained because at this time with more sexual autonomy, women were less afraid to sort of litigate their their sexual experiences. So courts concluded as a result of that, that the tort was ripe for abusive process and that emotional damages in this case were unfit for the type of harm caused. Second, and this is what the woman who actually led the the movement to abolish the tort concluded was that women were no longer considered to be chattel and they did not need the protection of the law from men. So the tort was not needed. So it women argued to abolish it. Could kind of like like I guess that argument is that it was sort of like a patronizing tort. Exactly. Yeah, but the first I know there's a third one, but the first one 
the first one almost sounds to me like a tort reform kind of argument, which is, you know, oh, you know, people are just going to abuse this and these women are going to come forward with these bullshit lawsuits. And and we don't think that, you know, they should be doing this and women can make their own decisions, et cetera, et cetera. So while the second one seems very pro women's rights, the first one sounds exactly the opposite. I agree. Yeah. Okay. And it's, yeah, it's I mean, even 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 the second one, it's almost patronizing in the way that it's pro women's rights. I guess I understand that obviously, you know, women aren't chattel, but then to say that they're not chattel. So they so they don't need the protection of the law. It's like, you know. Yeah, but I, it I sounds know. it sounds like the second one in a vacuum was to abolish the history of the behind the statute. I, yeah, that's to true. attack it, the history behind yeah, the statute. Totally. Say that yeah, the yeah, statute, yeah. The, one of the reasons the statute was enacted was because. Women can't make their own decisions and men get to make the decisions for them about whether or not to sue or whether or not they're valuable to the family or household. Anyway, there's a third reason. The third reason is at the time there were a a bunch of highly publicized news stories that basically covered significant recoveries on behalf of women claiming that they were seduced by men. These were powerful men that were in business and in Hollywood. And as a result of those news stories, people thought that this was a really common cause of action and that these recoveries were the norm. So there's sort of just a public backlash to the tort as a result of those news stories. Well, that sort of sounds like the first one, right? I mean, it's, it's, it also sounds like tort reform. It sounds like we're trying to protect powerful people who are getting sued for something like this. And, you know, it would it, it's like a Harvey Weinstein or someone like that and saying, you know, it's just outrageous that that. Someone like that is getting sued because he's rich and powerful. Right. Okay. So, yeah. uh, so, or like, or like the argument, like, oh, the courts are jammed up with these types of cases. And it's like, it's not. It's just they generate a lot of press. And California did away with this, right? By statute. California followed the national trend in 1939 and, and did away with it by statute. And although it did not explicitly say it at the time, it later concluded that the tort was against public policy. And that is why the statute passed in 1939. Well, you can say an awful lot when you say against public policy. But having said that, are there any states that still have the tort under the common law? There are about one third of states still maintain the action in in some form or another. This was recently brought in in a case in North Carolina. I, I don't know the outcome of, of that case, but in, in most states, it's this, even though the the tort still exists and the cause of action is available, it's very rarely brought. Yeah, that was my next question is, do you you ever actually see any lawsuits being brought in this in states where the common law hasn't been tossed out? The case I was talking about in North Carolina, and I'm sorry, I don't know the outcome, but it was a case where a a woman was raped by another, another student at her college. And it turned out that that case was mostly it was decided on the fact that the man raped her and not that he seduced her, even though this was one of the cause of action brought. All right. So here we are now today in California without this, with the statute actually on the books, abolishing the, the, the common law tort. And one of the things you're arguing for is that perhaps we should take another look at this tort, perhaps revising it in some fashion wouldn't be a bad idea. So talk to us about that. What, what's, what's your thoughts about that? I think it's interesting because looking at the tort in its historical context, I mean, no, nobody wants to bring that back. We don't want women as a property right. And we also don't want to say that a woman's virginity is her what equals her worth. So I think 
The reason to bring the tort back is because it opens the door to allow plaintiffs to sue when they are coerced into a sexual relationship through non-physical means. Let me ask you this question. This is the thing I was struggling with was this. I was thinking the Harvey Weinstein example, which is, you know, now well known and and been found guilty in both coasts. So as far as I can tell, and and if my facts are wrong here, I apologize because I'm just trying to, to use it more as a hypothetical. Harvey Weinstein doesn't necessarily physically force anybody into or, or in some of these people into a sexual relationship with him. He uses his power, he uses his authority, he uses his position. And for that, there's both tort remedies and criminal penalties, right? So what's the need for this statute under those circumstances? I could think of one, a lower, maybe a lower threshold or a more defined threshold of what needs to be established for holding someone like that liable. Yeah, I'm not trying to be insensitive to it. I, I, I'm all in no, favor you're, you're of creating more torts, like, well, right? Yeah, yeah. Saying, well, well, how, how is it any different? I don't know. I mean, I, I guess create a distinct, unique cause of action that can be brought in a situation like what we saw during, during the Me Too movement, which I, I'm sure is still going on and has gone on for, sadly, for a really long time and, and probably still doesn't get enough attention, the attention it deserves, but creates a unique cause of action that, yeah, sure, the same remedies might be available through another tort, you know, through bringing a claim for assault or battery or things like that. But if if you make it even, you know, make it even more straightforward, it creates sort of like a unique remedy or unique mechanism for holding the perpetrators of this type of conduct accountable. I think that's where the that's where the value. Annie, what are your thoughts? Yeah. Yeah. Interested in Annie's thoughts. I think it's it's not that I'm not interested in your thoughts, Sean, (laughs) but not that interested. Yeah, I know. That's okay. So what what this statute does is it prohibits cause of action for seduction. So the repeal of it wouldn't necessarily authorize explicitly these causes of action to move forward. It would just open the door to litigate them. So what happens is, for the example of Harvey Weinstein, California allows one to sue for emotional, an an adult woman to sue for emotional damages if she's sexually assaulted when or when she's seduced, like you were saying, it wasn't physical seduction in Harvey Weinstein's case, but he also breached a, a duty to that woman because it was like a working relationship or some other fiduciary relationship. So in in those circumstances, this statute doesn't prohibit those causes of action. But there was a case in 2003 called Rochelle where a priest seduced one of his parishioners. The priest lied to her. He was in a position of power. This woman was extremely devout. And the, the pre- adult parishioner, right? So we're not talking about like a child sex abuse type of relationship. But, right. A, an adult, yeah. adult parishioner who was very religious. And they, they weren't necessarily in a counseling relationship, but she had a relationship with him as a priest at the church that she attended. So he lied to her, said he was only sleeping with her and not other parishioners. He said he was going to leave the church and he knew she was vulnerable and took advantage of that and convinced her to enter into a sexual relationship. And even, I mean, it, I'm not sure it should be relevant, but at the time she was in fact celibate or a virgin. So when that woman sued for emotional damages as a result of that relationship, her causes of action were barred because of this statute that prohibits torts for Civil Code Section 43.5. Right. Civil Code Section 43.5 barred it, but, and the court then came back and said, Effectively, paraphrasing here, consenting adult, 
doesn't matter if it was by trickery or not. It's just it was a consenting sexual relation. She went into it with fully fully consenting. And so and there's no special relationship. So no cause of action. There's no remedy. There's no recovery. Right. Don't you think you could have used a battery or, or some kind of theory like that to be able to pursue it? So maybe even then, I think if the conduct solely arises out of the seduction and there's no physical force, then it would still be barred by the statute. Trickery. By trickery. Some kind of trickery. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the, the thing that's interesting to me about it is it's almost like we've come sort of full circle on the the, the issue of women's rights and protecting the ability to. And, and of course, the statute wouldn't necessarily be limited to women either. If it were repealed, it would be both equal gender neutral. But it seems like you go from it being we're repealing the common law because we want to acknowledge the fact that women have certain rights and they can make certain decisions. But then you come full circle and you see that, well, that's not necessarily true. I don't want to get myself in trouble here, but not necessarily true in the sense that there are occasions when women are or people are tricked into these kinds of sexual relations. Right. And and if these injuries do occur, we should let courts determine whether these injuries deserve redress rather than simply bar them outright. It's very interesting. Like I said at the beginning of this, I had no idea that this actually existed. This tort actually existed. John? Yeah, I had no idea either. I, I, I never knew it ever existed or that there was any kind of case law about these types of claims specifically under the seduction tort. Yeah, you, you certainly can. You certainly can think of situations completely gender neutral where this would have occurred and somebody was injured or harmed as a result of it. So. Interesting topic. Yeah. I really appreciate you you bringing it to us and talking about it. Any last thoughts on it, Annie? No particular thought this time. I do think it's an interesting issue. Before we started this the show, did you tell me that there was some effort to to repeal the statute that it, it at least occurred? Was a bill introduced in Sacramento or was there just talk of it? There are very, very nascent efforts to repeal the statute. It's It's basically at the stage where the advocates are asking their state senators to to sponsor this legislation. Are there specific groups or advocates advocates out there that are interested in this particular topic? So I don't the reason this came to our attention was because a potential client had contacted us. So they are not a named group, so I don't want to name them as individuals, but they are making headway here and really trying to to make this happen. Hey, and very important for Sean's benefit, nascent. Nascent <laughs> is a adjective, and it means just coming into existence and beginning to display signs of future potential. Okay, That's Sean? a very big word. That's too big for me. Clearly too big for Brian because he had to look it up and tell me the definition. No, it's got seven letters in it. I mean, it's a big <laughs> word. Very it's a fancy big. word. No, but all kidding aside, thank you, Annie, for filling us in about stuff like this. This is the type of stuff that I was saying that Annie comes across doing intake at the firm. And if you ever have a an interesting issue or a nascent not, issue, an, a, a nascent issue in the law that that you may believe you will be able to make traction on. Get in touch with us. Annie will look into it and she'll let you know if there's something there or not. And we really do appreciate what everything Annie does. Thank you for being our guest, Annie. And thank you for teaching Sean a new word. <laughs> thank you yeah, so thank much you. for having me. Thank you. <laughs> Very informational. No, but and, and thank you, everyone. Any listeners we have out there for tuning in and thank you for giving us your feedback and please reach out really if, if there's anything you want to hear us talk about or you want to share with us or correct any mistakes that Brian has made you know feel free to reach out and thanks for tuning in hey thank you for listening today we really appreciate it this is Brian Kabatek you can reach me at bsk at kbklawyers.com 
And I'm Sean Kernikin. You can find me online at sk at kbklawyers.com. And as you might have guessed, our website is kbklawyers.com. You could find us on all social media platforms at Cabotech LLP. We like putting on the show. We appreciate you listening. If you can go online and like us, give us ratings, follow us on all the different platforms. If you know someone that practices in a particular area and you, you think they might find this useful, feel free to share it with them. And feel free to reach out to us if you have any questions, if you wanna bring an interesting case to our attention, you have a potential case you want advice on from us, we'd be happy to help you out if we can. And we'd love to hear from you.